0: I just found out I'm overweight. BMI is 25. Oh, well. Okay, so we're going to continue. We've just finished lung mechanics, and I know you've done spirometry in the past. Uh, I need to um, revisit a... A phenomenon uh, called dynamic airway compression uh, during this lecture because that is a dynamic variation in airway resistance. So most of this lecture is going to be about change in airway resistance and we're going to talk about that under one very unique set of circumstances. That's when you ask someone to do a pulmonary function test, do a forced expiratory maneuver, because that demonstrates some fairly unique behavior Uh, which is this dynamic airway compression, which is essentially a valve formation in the airways. Now, we don't normally have it because we don't normally do forced expiration. Sometimes we do relaxed expiration. Sometimes we do augmented active expiration. But it's very rare you actually have to do a true forced expiration, which means go to total lung capacity and then blast everything out as hard as you can. That really only occurs when you take a patient into a spirometry clinic and ask them to do that maneuver. Even during intense exercise, you're probably unlikely to be at forced expiration. So we're gonna talk about forced expiration and why it causes this valve formation and why it limits flow. And then we're gonna talk about how that can occur in in a non-normal individual. In an individual with something like emphysema, that individual can replicate uh, this dynamic airway compression, but instead of during a forced expiration, just during an active expiration, they can see the same thing that you would require a forced expiration to show. And then we'll talk a little bit in generic terms about pressure, flow, uh, and resistance. Now most of this ain't new because it's really just hemodynamics again. So don't forget, just because we're now in a different system, It doesn't mean to say we throw all our old ideas out. We keep them all, uh, it's just we're going to apply them in a different system. So let's see how much hemodynamics you remember. Listen, all physiology is down to one law, A equals B times C. A is flow, B is the force, C is the conductivity. Okay, so let's see what you're going for here. okay trachea okay is it clicking? yeah Yeah. At what level? Absolutely. Not through an individual, but. Okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, uh, <laughs> I'd hoped you get that one right. Um, cardiac output. If we've got five liters leaving the heart, how much do we have going through the aorta? How much then goes through the arteries? How much then goes through the capillaries? How much then goes through the veins? How much comes back to the heart? Okay, so G would have been the best answer here. We cannot say that the flow is higher in the aorta than anywhere else. We have the same flow in a circular system. Well, you know what? It's no different back in the respiratory system. Flow. Flow is a volume per unit time. If my lungs expand, they expand by a certain volume per unit time, which means the flow through the trachea is equivalent to flow through the bronchi, is equivalent to flow through the bronchioles, is equivalent to flow into the alveoli. No different than what we learnt in cardiovascular, or didn't learn in cardiovascular. Let's try one more then. Okay. Yes, there we go. So we have to discriminate between flow and flow velocity. One is a volume per unit time, one is a distance per unit time. And indeed, the flow velocity, the speed at which air flows through the system, is very much higher in the trachea than down in the terminal bronchioles and the alveolar. Now why is that? It's because it's the same flow... But into a bigger cross-sectional area, and if we open up a cross-sectional area, the velocity is going to fall. So I've just put that up as a reminder <laughs> that, that keep applying the principles you learned in cardiovascular,, however, however maybe not, in this case. Um, so what are we going to talk about for the next 10 minutes? We're going to talk about this. You know this is, why is it in a flow volume loop? when we do spirometry, that during the FEF 75 to 25, 25 75, we get what's called effort independence. Meaning no, no matter how hard the patient tries, whether they give a maximal effort, or they give a sub-maximal effort, or whether they give her a very poor effort, we've got a very big effect on the peak flow that we record but the latter part of the flow volume curve, it all converges and we can't really tell if the patient made a big effort, a small effort or not, which is why we call effort independent. Now the key to this, the punchline to this, we'll cut straight to it, is dynamic airway compression. It's dynamic airway compression that causes this phenomenon and our task over the next 10 minutes is to try and understand how we get into a situation where we form dynamic airway compression and flow limitation. So this is what I mean. If we were to take a patient, put them up to total lung capacity, blast the air out of the lungs, and then we measure the volume that they breathe out against the rate at which the air is leaving them, we find that, of course, there's a very high inflection. You can get air out quickly at the beginning. We reach a peak, which is our peak flow, and that is the one that you're going to use on a day-to-day basis with your asthmatic patients and with anyone with any obstructive diseases on a day-to-day basis you can give them a peak flow meter and basically they blast the air out as hard as they can and you track that every day that shows you effectively how obstructed or unobstructed your airways are especially your upper airways but soon after peak flow we crash into this linear decline and of course By one second, we're down here, two, three, four, five, six seconds, and we should be empty, we should be down to a residual volume, and we should have breathed everything out. So this really does zoom in on the first couple of seconds of activity, and then the last three, four, five, six seconds are all compacted in this section here. But what we notice is that depending upon the effort the patient makes, if they make a maximal effort, we get the red line, if we make a submaximal effort, we get a drop in peak flow. But if I were to cover up the first sort of third of the graph, it's kind of hard to say which patient made the high effort, which patient made the low effort over the latter part of the graph. We get a convergence. And even if a patient makes a very, very submaximal effort, we get a drastic effect on the peak flow. But again, at some point, they still merge with this flow volume envelope and they follow the same route down. So if I were to cover everything up from this point forward, you could not tell me which patient made a normal effort and which made a very submaximal effort. So we call that region effort independent. Now, it's not just this part. This is a terrible effort, you know, we, we wouldn't keep data like this, we'd get rid of it. Most people can make a relatively normal effort. So usually about the last two thirds of that graph are what we term effort independent. Now, what we're going to talk about over the next few minutes is why we see this effort independence on this graph and what it is that's actually causing the valve to limit flow during this latter part of the flow volume envelope. And so let's just jump straight to that sequence of graphs. We're going to start here. This is at functional residual capacity. The lung is at rest, the chest wall is at rest. We're at that pause in between breaths. The lung is at its rest value, which is our functional residual capacity. Now, if we were to freeze the action at this point, we would find that the alveolar pressure is zero, the airway pressure is zero, the atmospheric pressure is zero. We're at that point where no flow is occurring Therefore, all pressures are equilibrated from the alveoli to the atmosphere. Now, at that point, we still have outward reach recoil of the chest. Chest is like a spring. It wants to leap outwards. The lungs are like a balloon. They want to collapse inwards. So this tension develops between the two. And when two structures try to pull apart, that means the pressure between the two structures is going to drop. And we find a negative pressure in the pleural space. And at rest, it's about minus 5. Centimetres of water. That again is due to the strength of the inward recoil of the lung and the outward recoil of the chest wall. So that's FRC. We then ask the patient to start to breathe in. So let's say about halfway through our inspiratory cycle. We use the muscles, the diaphragm, to pull the diaphragm down and flat, and maybe accessory muscles to pull the ribcage outwards and upwards and increase thoracic volume. Now, of course, what that does is by increasing thoracic volume, we're going to cause a drop in the pleural pressure. So the pleural pressure drops to about minus seven. Now, of course, the pressure inside the alveolus is now far higher than the pressure outside the alveolus. Therefore, the elastic alveolus starts to expand. And as the alveolus expands, the pressure inside the alveolus drops. So this is how we generate the pressure differential between the alveolus and the mouth to get flow into the alveolus. So again, this is a snapshot, snapshot in time. We've paused the action as we make that inspiratory effort. Pleural pressure drops because the thorax expanded. That negative pressure, because think about what's the transpulmonary pressure at this point? Remember, that's the alveolar pressure minus the uh, intrapleural pressure, so that would be minus 2, minus minus 7. That's going to give us a plus 5. Yeah. Now, if we were to look at the transpulmonary pressure, not necessarily in the alveolus, but let's look at it at the airway. We can see here that in our airway, because it's patent, because our airway is open to the outside world, we have a mild negative pressure due to alveolar expansion. We have a pressure at the atmosphere of zero. Therefore, we will have a continuous decline in pressure between minus two and zero. It's going to be 1.99, 1.98, 1.97, all the way down to zero. So halfway down the airway is going to be halfway between minus two and zero. We're going to have an airway pressure of about negative 1. But you can see that airway pressure of negative 1 is still higher than the pleural pressure of negative 7. If we were to take the transpulmonary pressure at that point, it would be the airway pressure of negative 1 minus the minus 7. That gives us a trans airway pressure, a tap, of plus 6. Now what does that tell us? That's telling us that the airway pressure is higher and the pressure outside the airway well that's good news because that means that we're pushing on the airway walls we're keeping the airways nice and open now we're going to fast forward a little bit we're going to go up to full inspiration we're going to hold it at that point where we're at full inspiration the chest has moved out as far as possible the accessory muscles have pulled the ribcage upwards and outwards as far as they're going to go the diaphragm has gone as flat as it's going to go. And now we can see that this rib cage is in a fixed, large formation. Therefore, the only thing that's causing the negative pleural pressure inside the pleural space is that the lung wants to collapse. It's a rubber elastic structure, or like a rubber elastic structure, that wants to contract in on itself. Therefore, the recoil of the lung, trying to pull inwards, generates a negative pressure inside this pleural space. And it's around about negative 12 centimeters of water. So that negative 12 represents the elastic recoil of the lung trying to shrink away from our expanded fixed chest wall. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to stop when flow has equilibrated. Now, flow is equilibrated when I move my thorax out and keep it there. So you can move it out, you hear the air rushing in, and then if you keep it expanded, you stop hearing air rushing in. At some point, it's full. So at this point, we've got no pressure differential across the airway, but we do have a pressure differential across the airway wall. I should say we have no pressure differential along the length of the airway, but we do have a pressure differential across the airway wall. The pressure inside the airway is zero, The pressure in the pleural space is negative 12. So that gives us a trans airway pressure plus 12. Again, this is good for airways. This is a large pressure that's pushing on the walls of the airway, keeping them wide open. So, so far, so good. No sign of any resistive problems in the airways during our inspiratory cycle. Then the problems start. We're going to freeze the action at that immediate moment when you get the forced expiration. So, we've got very strong abdominal muscles, we've got strong diaphragm, uh, well, we don't have a strong diaphragm, we have a strong diaphragm for inspiration, not for expiration, it just relaxes, but primarily, the strength of our muscles comes from those abdominals that can jerk the ribcage downwards and inwards and pull it into a small configuration. Now, what that does is we now see, for the first time, a positive pleural pressure, because we're actually compressing and pushing on the pleural space. It's a very violent action, it's a very forced expiration. We don't normally see positive positive pleural pressures, so we only see positive pleural pressures during this very forced expiration. Now, I've put a number on it. Our abdominal muscles are strong enough to squeeze on that pleural space and generate about plus 30 centimeters of water pressure. So they can contract the thorax and push on the pleural space with enough strength to generate about plus 30 centimeters of water pressure. Now what was it that was keeping the lungs expanded? The only thing that was keeping the lungs expanded was this negative pleural pressure. Well, now that we don't have a negative pleural pressure, the lungs are now free to recoil inwards under their own elastic strength just like a balloon. You inflate a balloon, you let the end go, it recoils inwards and farts the air out. Yeah, Same thing happens here with lung. Because we've alleviated the negative pleural pressure, there is no pressure, negative pleural pressure to pull the lungs open. Therefore, they contract in on themselves with the same elastic recoil force that we had at the previous part. Because remember, what I said to you here, Minus 12 centimeters of water is a reflection of the elastic recoil of the lung because the chest wall is fixed. and All that is is the lungs trying to contract in on themselves. So that tells us that the total pressure inside the alveolus is the plus 30 centimeters of water pressure because of thoracic contraction. And we've got to add on the 12 centimeters of water pressure due to the elastic contraction of the lungs, because both of these things are pointing in the inward direction. The thorax is pulling in on itself, and the lungs are also collapsing in on themselves. So the total in pressure that we develop inside the alveoli is 42, and that's the 30 plus the 12 centimeters of elastic recall from the lung. So again, what we have is 42 centimeters of water pressure inside the alveolus, We've got zero centimeters of water pressure out at the mouth, and we have this continuous gradient between the two, 41, 40, 39, all the way down to zero. At some point, you can see, we've chosen this point here, halfway along the airways, where the pressure is plus 21, let's take a look at the transairway pressure. The transairway pressure is airway pressure minus the pleural pressure. What you can see here is we've now swapped to a negative trans airway pressure. The pressure inside the airways is actually lower than the pressure in the pleural space. That's not good for the airways. That means the airways are being compressed. That positive pleural pressure is enough to compress the airways and give us a valve for flow limitation. Now clearly... As we go further up the airways, this drops to 20, 19, 18, 17, 16. So the compression gets even worse the further up the airways we go because the 30 centimeters of water pressure inside the pleural space is a fixed amount. And the lower the airway pressure is, the greater compressive force we have acting on those airways. Of course, until we get out to the cartilaginous airways that have that support, that structural support that prevents compression. So dynamic airway compression is the result of a positive pleural pressure being higher than the airway pressure and now that positive pleural pressure squeezes on the airways and actually causes a compression and an increase in resistance. So let's take a look at this. This kind of delineates the full gradient here. Uh, Here's a chest wall, the box Here's our lung, the circle, and here's our airway. What we said is, and this is, remember, only during forced expiration, the muscles of the abdomen pull through the rib cage sharply inwards and downwards. That causes a positive pressure to be developed plus 30 centimeters of water. Now that we've lost our negative pleural pressure, the elastic lungs contract under their own elastic recoil. Well, it's worth an additional 12 centimeters of water pressure. So the total inward vectors are 12 of elastic recall from the lung and plus 30 of the active muscle pressure that's been applied by your expiratory muscles squeezing down on the pleural space. So the 30 plus the 12 gives us the alveolar pressure of 42. Then we can see that we can draw the total gradient out, 40, 35, 30, 25, 20, 15, 10, 5, finally down to zero. We have a linear decline in pressure between our two endpoints, between the high pressure in the alveolus and the zero pressure out at the mouth. What we show here is the pressure differential, the trans-airway pressure. So this is 40 minus 30. Okay. So that essentially here we can see that this 40 is 10 higher than 30. That means that the airway pressure is elevated above pleural pressure, and we have a nice force pushing outwards on the airway walls at that point. At the next part along, 35 is higher than 30 by 5 centimeters of water pressure. Therefore, again, at this point, the airway pressure is elevated above the pleural pressure, and again, we've got a distending force keeping the airways nice and open. At the next point down, the pressure here is 30, the pressure out here is 30. This is what we call the equal pressure point. The pressure differential is zero. So at this point, there is no net pressure to open or close the airway. Pressure inside and outside the airway is exactly equivalent, and that's our equal pressure point. Now, as soon as we go further along the airway, airway here is 25, Plural pressure is 30, that means that the airway pressure is 5 less than the plural pressure. Now we're starting to go into a negative trans airway pressure, and so we start to see dynamic airway compression. Now, if I were to draw it on here, of course, what would happen is that. That's a weird one. We would get a progressive worsening valve formation along the length of the airway as this airway pressure fell further and further below the pleural pressure and the force of compression increased along the length of the airways. And then as soon as we reach the cartilaginous airways, of course, we don't have to worry about dynamic airway compression. So essentially what this is telling us is All of that effort that you put in to expiration translates into a positive pleural pressure that causes compression of the airways. And now all that happens is air leaks slowly through that valve at the rate at which air leaks and the volume of the lungs slowly diminish. And this is why it's effort independent. We make a small effort, we get a small positive pleural pressure. We make a large effort, we get a large positive pleural pressure. The valve changes its sensitivity depending on your effort. The more effort you make, the more valve you form, and again, the air just leaks out at its own rate. So that is our equal pressure point. Now let's take a look at what does that mean in terms of the gradient for airflow. You already understand, of course, that if I have a gradient for flow between the alveolus and the atmosphere, then the flow will be proportionate to that pressure gradient. It's the difference between the alveolar pressure and the atmospheric pressure that causes flow. Therefore, those are the two vital pressures that tell us how much flow is going to occur either into or out of the alveolus. However, during forced expiration, that's not true. During forced expiration, it doesn't actually matter what the alveolar pressure is in comparison to the atmospheric pressure. And the easiest way to understand this is imagine that you've got... uh, Uh, tap, imagine there's a hose attached to it, you turn the tap and water flows. You turn the tap harder, water flows harder. You turn the tap down again, you get less water flow. But now if I stand on the hose and turn the tap, do I get any flow? Even though there's a pressure differential between the tap and the end of the hose, I ain't going to get flow. Why? Because I've got a compressive force pushing on the hose. Therefore, that compressive force needs to be overcome by the pressure inside the pipe. So if I were to keep my foot on the hose and turn the pipe harder and harder, at some point there'd be enough pressure to lift my foot and now flow would occur. It's the exact same with airways. We have an airway pressure, but we've got a positive pleural pressure that's squeezing on the airways, and that's your hose. Therefore, until the alveolar pressure exceeds the pleural pressure, flow doesn't occur. So the amount of flow that occurs during dynamic airway compression is actually the difference between the alveolar pressure and the positive pleural pressure that's compressing the airways. Alveolar pressure must exceed pleural pressure for that airway to be patent and to allow flow to occur. So if we were to use the example here, you can see that it was 42 inside the alveolus, it was 30 inside the pleural space. Therefore, it wouldn't be a pressure differential of 42 that was driving flow. It would be a pressure differential of 12, the difference between the alveolar pressure and the pleural pressure. So during forced expiration, it all changes slightly due to this dynamic airway compression. As you can see, here it's 42, here it's zero. The pressure driving flow is the 42 to 0. Here is 42. Here is 30 compressive. So we've actually got to subtract that compressive pressure from our total pressure. We actually only have 12 centimeters of water pressure driving the flow through that compressive part of our airway. Now, I should add, it's not dynamic airway collapse. It's dynamic airway compression, meaning we increase the resistance, but we're not closing the airways uh, firmly. So it's dynamic airway compression. Now, let's take a look at, so for you, it's only an issue during forced expiration. Let's take a look at what happens when you give the patient some pathophysiology. Let's take a look and see what happens when we do something like give the patient emphysema. So on the left, here's a normal situation. The outer triangle is our thorax, the inner triangle is our lung, our pleural space, and here is our alveolus here. So we're at this point where the thoracic muscles and the accessory muscles, the abdominal muscles, have contracted and provide a positive pleural pressure. Our lung recoil in this case is only plus 10. So the pressure inside the lung is the 30 plus the 10 recoil of the lung, that gives us plus 40. Now, our equal pressure point occurs when we have an airway pressure that's equivalent to our pleural pressure. So here's where our equal pressure point is. Any proximal to that, towards the mouth, anything proximal to that, the airway pressure is lower than the pleural pressure. We have dynamic airway compression. Well, let's take a look now at emphysema. What we've said is emphysema is an incredibly high compliance. That means the structure is incredibly easy to inflate. Now the reason that it's incredibly easy to inflate is because there's no elastic resistance. It has no elastic recoil. It's a bit like taking an IGA bag and blowing into it. Then when you release, it doesn't squeeze the air out. The air just stays inside the IGA bag. Whereas if you blow into an elastic balloon and then release, the recoil blasts the air out. Well, emphysema is a bit like having a lung, like an IgA bag. It's easy to inflate, but it does not exert any recoil force on the air inside it because it has no elastic recoil. Well, here, I'm using absolute terms. Be aware, it doesn't, it's not that it has no elastic recoil. It's got a very reduced elastic recoil. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to reduce the elastic recoil. Remember we said here it was about 10 to 12? Well, let's, in this high-compliant lung with emphysema, let's give a concomitant reduction in recoil. The patient's uh, muscles for expiration are fine. Let's assume that. So the abdominal muscles contract. They give us plus 30 centimeters of pressure inside the pleural space. However, the recoil of the lung is very weak and only adds an additional 2 centimeters of water pressure. Therefore, the total pressure developed in the alveoli is the 30 plus the 2. We've only got 32 centimeters of water pressure in the alveoli. Well, that's barely above pleural pressure. So that means already, as soon as we step outside the alveoli, we're finding that there's very little airway pressure to push against the positive pressure of the pleural space. That means we reach the equal pressure point far sooner. So the equal pressure point moves down, 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 distal, deep into the airways and approaches the alveoli because there is no lung recoil to augment the airway pressures and push against that positive pleural pressure. That, of course, means that in a patient with emphysema, they're going to find it much harder to exhale because they don't have the lung helping with that exhalation. They don't have the elastic recoil of the lung helping with that exhalation. And not only that, they're far more prone to developing dynamic airway compression even with mild expiratory effort. So, expiration in emphysema is the difficult part. Inspiration is easy. So, this dynamic airway compression, this Compression of the airways by the positive pleural pressure during forced expiration is what leads to effort independence. Bottom line is, more effort simply forms more of a valve and doesn't give us any more flow. Now, let's come away from dynamic airway compression as a specific phenomenon and think about airway resistance overall. And really, this next part is very much akin to what you did in hemodynamics. It's the same relationships for airflow in the lung as you looked at in blood flow in the cardiovascular system. However, there is one slight difference, is that airway resistance is also related to the intrinsic lung volume, meaning that as we decrease lung volume from total lung capacity, down to functional residual capacity, then from functional residual capacity down to uh, residual volume, we find that there's a progressive uh, change in resistance. So what you can see here is that as we go from a high volume, up here on the right, eight, down in volume, we start to see this big increase in resistance. Did I say the opposite a second ago? You looked at my that's Okay, I thought I had. Often when I look at sonic foundry, I say something exactly opposite to what I was thinking. So as we decline in volume, we see this massive increase in resistance. Now why is that? Well, it's because of something called radial traction or radial tension. Let's take a look at this next picture. What this is showing you is these hexagons are schematic alveoli. And between our schematic alveoli, we have some circular structure. Could be an airway could be a blood vessel for all we care, doesn't actually matter, this is true of any vessel that is within, strung within this alveolar structure. As we inflate the alveoli and they spread out in all directions, because they're tethered to these structures at these points here, what we find is that the diameter or the radius of these circular structures is increased as our lung fills. Essentially, think of the alveoli as the scaffolding that hold the airway tree up. And as we spread that scaffolding out by increasing the size of the scaffolding, we pull on all of those structures that are scaffolded within the structure of the lung, meaning blood vessels and our airways. But as we deflate the lung and go to smaller lung volumes, there is less outward tension exerted on these structures, and therefore the diameter falls. So what that means, of course, is as we exhale, the airway diameter is reducing, and therefore resistance is increasing. So we actually see a natural increase in resistance as we expire, which explains why expiration is longer than inspiration, because the resistance to expiration is higher than the resistance to inspiration. Let's take a look at this. Let's take a look at some little puzzles here. We've got a pipe, there's a T bend there. A is half the length of B, and we have a similar head of pressure driving flow through these. So what would you say about the flow through A compared to B? Double, there's a good one. it. If A is half the length of B, we're gonna get more flow in A. Double seems like a pretty good relationship to me because we've got double, the resistance in B because we got double the length therefore we'd have half the flow so that's true linear length is progressively increasing resistance and that's a direct relationship the longer something is the more resistance is going to be exerted therefore the fluid is going to take the path of least resistance and we're going to get double the flow if we've got half the resistance on the left absolutely true what about this one? We've got the original situation here. So we've got A is half the length of B. C is also half the length of D. But this time, we doubled the pressure head that's driving the flow through the system. So how would the flow in C compare to the flow in A? How many people think the same? One? <laughs> How many people think double? How many people think it's just not worth worrying about? Well, that's a good sign. I'm not sure sure you're honest, but it's a good sign. Um, We've doubled the pressure head. If we double the pressure head, we're going to double the flow. Okay? So what we're seeing here is because we doubled the driving, we went from this water level and we doubled the water level we're gonna get double the flow occurring which means that the flow through C is gonna be double than the flow through A all good also of course the flow through D is gonna be double than the flow through B but nevertheless the flow through C is still gonna be higher than the flow through D if you follow that good luck now next one here we have again the same pressure But on the left, pipe A is double the radius of pipe B. Now what do we expect? Okay, somebody did pre-reading. Fantastic. It would be tempting, wouldn't it, to say that because we doubled the radius, we doubled the flow. But it doesn't work like that. What we actually find is that there's 16 times more flow in A than through B. What we find is that radius is far more important in controlling resistance than is length. Length is a linear relationship. Radius is a fourth power relationship. It's a very non-linear relationship. Now the key to that is to understand that as you increase the radius of a circle, the increase in area outpaces the increase in circumference drastically. Now what that means, of course, is that more of your flow is occurring through the center of the tube and less is in contact with a surface area. Therefore, as we increase the radius of a tube, more of that flow barrels down the middle, never meets any surface area with which to form a resistance. So we get far, far more flow when we open up the radius than when we close down the radius, which is why... We've evolved to use radius as our main methodology to control resistance and therefore flow through both blood vessels and, of course, through yeah, our airways. So what we can do is we can use the law of Poiseus to to, yep, <laughs> um, to uh, take a look at what type of flow occurs. Now, the, the one thing is all these physical laws come with a set of assumptions and conditions. And what we're saying here is, look, this law holds very nicely true when we're talking about laminar flow through rigid tubes. Now, clearly, we don't have laminar flow through rigid tubes, but nevertheless, the law of Poiseuze tells us something very useful. What it tells us is the exact relationship between, this should be V with a dot above it, which is a volume per unit time, so that is flow. Flow is equivalent to the pressure gradient and importantly here, the fourth power of radius, and then eight, viscosity is in here, and dis, uh, linear distance is in here as well. So we can rearrange that to tell us what resistance is. So here's, here's resistance, and so what you can see here is any increase in R, because it's raised to the fourth power, has a drastic drop in resistance. So a small change in radius is amplified by this fourth power and gives us a large drop in resistance. In terms of linear dimensions, if you double the linear length, you double the resistance. There's a linear relationship between length and resistance. Now what does that mean? Well, <laughs> Why even care what the point here is what is it going to be like for your patient to breathe? That's that's what the point is. So in situations like asthma or emphysema or COPD What is your patient experience? They don't say to you. Hey, the workload of breathing is getting pretty drastic here They're gonna say to you they're breathless. They feel tired. They're fatigued Why is that? It's because they're using so much energy on the transactions of thoracic movement that they become exhausted. So something that should be 2% of your metabolic demand is ramped up, and again, every breath you take becomes difficult. So any increase in resistance becomes an increased workload that that patient has to deal with. That becomes an increased tolerance that they have to build into their everyday life. Now clearly, if we say that the resistance goes up by three, That means that we can only compensate by providing a greater driving pressure. So as the resistance goes up in the airways, we now have to make bigger respiratory movements. That, of course, is work. That's work for the muscles. That's work for the patient. And, of course, it's on every single breath. So it's an increased workload, and it's an increased demand that the patient experiences because they have to make big robust respiratory movements, whereas very small minor respiratory movements did the same thing when the resistance was low. Now this is why you're gonna see infants that are born prematurely and have no surfactant. They make big respiratory movements. They're trying to overcome the resistance and make sure that they can get air into the lungs. Now surface Tension is largely the resistance they're fighting against there rather than airway resistance. But again, the point is any form of resistance to get air into the lungs is something we have to fight against. Now, uh, let's go back here. W- one thing to note is that turbulence itself, now we've talked about turbulence in the cardiovascular system, and again it's the exact same thing here. High velocity causes turbulence, and there's actually a propensity to develop turbulence again in wider tubes rather than narrower tubes. Now again, if you combine a wide tube with a high velocity, there's a far greater propensity to turbulence. Now the reason that it's more likely in a wide tube is again... There's lots of area in the middle where you don't touch the surface and all these eddies and vortices can attack Whereas towards the surface there's what's called a laminar effect We have a resistance, a viscosity that develops around that surface and that slows the air down And of course that slow moving air slows the air down next to that And so we have this sort of viscous effect of the walls slowing the air down ever so slightly towards the edges of a pipe, which is why big pipes and high velocity are the worst recipe for turbulence. But the biggest thing physiologically is that the velocity of flow is really what's going to cause turbulence. Now in truth, although there's not much modeling done of it, uh, the experimental evidence suggests that we don't really have turbulent or laminar flow in the airways, rather we got transitional. Because what we've got to remember is we've got a geometry to care about. We come down a pipe, and then we bifurcate into two. That bifurcation starts off an eddy. It starts off this chaotic flow. And then that chaotic flow dampens itself down, and then it bifurcates again. So at each bifurcation, we get these vortices and eddies. And so we actually get a transient uh, flow. But by the time the flow comes down into the deeper airways, we're opening out into a very wide cross-sectional area. And because we're opening out into a wide cross-sectional area, the velocity falls markedly. Now we don't hear turbulence in the lower airways because of that massive increase in cross-sectional area. The point to notice is that turbulence itself is a form of resistance. Therefore, what I just said to you, most turbulence occurs in the sort of first five, six generations of the airways, the wide tubes. That's because we've got a low total cross-sectional area there and a high velocity flow. As that flow spreads out into the big, wide cross-sectional area deeper down, the velocity plummets, turbulence stops. But the point here is that because turbulence is a form of resistance, we actually see an increased resistance as we go through the first five generations of the airways. So that the peak resistance doesn't occur in the trachea. It actually occurs here in generations two through five. So that's that turbulent flow that's being kicked off by that first bifurcation into the two mainstem main bronchi. As I say, as we get deeper into the respiratory tree, the velocity drops off drastically, which means turbulence is far less likely to develop. So that by the time we get down into these airway generations, we actually have far less resistance because the total cross-sectional area is massively increased. Now the way I can describe that is, the trachea is like breathing out through a straw, but if we pick these airways down here, that's like breathing out through 20 straws taped together. So although each of the airways gets smaller, the total cross-sectional area drastically increases as we get deeper and deeper into the respiratory tree. So what we see, essentially, is that this massive increase in total cross-section causes a massive drop in resistance and also a massive drop in flow velocity and therefore less propensity to turbulent flow. I'm going to finish with this question. And the reason I finish with this question is because this would be in utter contrast to if I'd said COPD. It would be the opposite answer. Now, you can reason this out if you paid attention in your histology classes. You will have learned that what gets sparser and sparser as we move down through the respiratory tree? Smooth muscle. Less smooth muscle means less bronchoconstriction. So, upper airways are most affected in asthma because that's where we have the greatest amount of smooth muscle, whereas lower airways are generally less affected. For COPD, it's the exact opposite. COPD, inflammation starts at the terminal airways and works its way up. Okay, let's take a break.